It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, I got info for you on two hacks you need to be aware of, one that you're vulnerable for, the other a hack that already happened that you maybe do compensation. And then coming up yet later, there was a big report this past weekend that this week is perhaps the best week of the year to be a home buyer and maybe the worst week of the year to be a home seller. I'm going to give you my react to that and tell you when I think the absolute best time is to be a home buyer. And that's all coming up for you later. Clark.com is our website. Clarkdeals.com is our deal site. Check them both out. I want you to check this out. So I shared with you back in the summer how there was an issue with the cell phone carriers selling your exact location real time to a variety of players some no questions asked as long as they were willing to pay the cell phone carriers were selling off your location well there have now been a number of lawsuits filed against AT&T for this because AT&T was a very aggressive actor apparently in selling your real-time location and AT&T had two particular partners and selling off your exact location real time and then making serious money from it not even telling you they were selling off where you were at all times this information was used for a number of ugly practices including putting people in potential danger who were trying to hide out from people who might be after them to hurt them in a number of ways, including physically. So AT&T, as you might imagine, is being sued over this case after case after case. But AT&T now, in every lawsuit that's been filed against it, is hiding behind the arbitration clause buried inside you doing business with AT&T. Even though AT&T has committed crime here. This isn't just, oh, they shouldn't have done it. AT&T has engaged in an illegal act by selling off your personal information, creating personal risk for you. And even in that case, AT&T hides behind arbitration. As you know, if you've listened to me for a long time, I am diametrically opposed to mandatory arbitration. I have no problem with you and any other individual or company or company to company if both parties are happy with settling something in arbitration that's fine but the reality is all 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 100 percent of arbitration forums between a business and a consumer or a business and employee are rigged in favor of the company. As I shared with you before, in the kangaroo court arbitration system that banks use, banks win 
just a whisker below 100% of the time. It's 99.9997% of the time, I think, is the number that banks win because the arbitrators know they don't get the work anymore if they don't find for that party that's paying them. So the U.S. House just, I think, last Friday approved a bill that would outlaw mandatory arbitration for you as an employee or you as a consumer. And this is fantastic. It did not pass overwhelmingly, but it did pass comfortably. Don't know if this will come up for a vote anytime soon in the U.S. Senate. But we live in a society right now where the deck is totally stacked with unfair, unbalanced rules against you as a consumer and you as an employee. You know, the bigs have too much power right now, and they use it to our detriment and to the country's very um, income inequality thing that we hear so much about. A lot of it is based on the lack of balance of power that corporations now have over us as workers. And one of the manifestations of that is the kangaroo court arbitration system. So I hope, although it seems nothing happens in Washington anymore other than people yelling at each other, I hope that the Senate will follow the lead of the House and deal with egregious things like AT&T hiding behind its kangaroo court arbitration when AT&T clearly did something wrong, did something illegal, did something that potentially is, well, I guess illegal is criminal. And it's reprehensible that they then hide behind arbitration. The only power, and I know people would say this who favor arbitration, well, why don't you just pick up and leave them? What happens if you're cheated by an employer? Yeah, you can leave, but what about the harm they already caused you? Arbitration prevents you getting fair compensation if you have been mistreated. Carlette's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Carlette. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Great, thank you. What's happening with you? Uh, Well, my daughter just moved back to the United States after being out for about 20 years, and she never had a credit card, never never needed one. Uh, Where all was she in the world in those 20 years? Uh, She was in... She was in the middle of the rainforest in Costa Rica. She had a uh, an incredible. Well, she still has it, just that she uh, is going to sell it. Uh, it's a uh, a retreat for uh, tourists. They would go and they would learn about um, the you know the rainforest and about all of the um, various plants. And she had this incredible garden and just an unbelievable place. Yeah, I mean she. Wow. Yeah, she. But her children now, my grandchildren, are all in the States, and she thought, you know, I'd rather be here. And uh, so she's going to start something here. But she needs to establish credit, and that's why I'm calling. So it's hard when you've been invisible in the U.S. financial system for, uh, gosh, it doesn't have to be 20 years. It can be just a few years. It becomes difficult to reestablish. She will find that when she goes to shop for auto insurance, that auto insurance in most states in the country will be much more expensive if you have what's known as a thin or no credit file. Um, mm-hmm. 
she mm-hmm. will find that getting a credit card initially will be a bit of a burden. And I want to mention some options for her for okay. starting to reestablish now, credit. Let me just let you know that she's had a Bank of America account for like 30 years. Is it just a checking account or is it a credit card? No, it's not a credit card. Just a just a regular checking, I guess. Yeah. All right. So unfortunately, that doesn't show up as an item on a credit report. Okay. All right. So okay. she All probably right. has okay. at 30 years, uh, 20 years away, she probably has no file anymore or what they call a thin file where they know she exists in her name but they have right. no basis to establish a score or anything like that. So I'm right, going to make right. a suggestion is the first thing I'd try is something mm-hmm. called the pedal card. P-E-T-A-L. Pedal? Yeah, P-E-T-A-L card.com. Okay. It is an issuer of a Visa card that uses their own method, different than normal traditional credit scoring, to decide whether to issue her a card. Okay. And that would be uh, step one. Step two, if they turn Mm -hmm. her down, is Mm -hmm. could you add her as an authorized user on a card or two of yours? You don't have to give her the card, but just Uh adding her as an authorized user will automatically Uh bring her credit forward those 20 years. Oh, okay. And that that can really help her... Uh, leap into being able to apply for her own card. The other thing she can do is join a credit union near where she's living now. Credit unions often offer what are known as fresh start programs because credit unions are nonprofit cooperatives and one of their missions is to help people with their credit and that's why it's a it's a generic term, not normally the term they use. Well, some use the term fresh start And so with a fresh start program with a credit union, you open an account with them, you establish a membership, you put some money in savings, and they'll issue a low-limit Visa or MasterCard that reports the credit bureau. So any and all of those methods may help her get reestablished. Miles is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Miles. Hey, good morning, Clark. Well, afternoon now. Miles, uh, you have been waiting since this morning. No, you didn't wait that long to go on the air. <laughs> no, no, not too long. So uh, you have a question for me involving being in a career that pays pretty well, but at the same time facing a mountain of student loan debt. Fill me in if you could. Oh, yes, sir. Um, so I'm in uh, physician assistant school, so a two-year program. Um, the costs vary for schools, but mine's private, and I'll end up all said and done with about $150,000 in debt. Um, I graduate in May of 2020 and uh, will then be looking for a job. So then, you know, average salary, it varies depending on specialty, but could look around hopefully, you know, 90-ish a year. Um, In terms of paying off my debt, what would you recommend as the best way to go about doing that? Um, Would you recommend you know, living off of half the salary, which is definitely feasible for me, um, and putting the rest towards that to get it done in like four-ish years, hopefully four or five. Or uh, I'm, I'm speechless but thrilled. If you're willing to make that kind of lifestyle sacrifice and live yeah. on half of what you make, 
and set a goal of being, let's let's say, five years to be realistic with what you'd have after tax income. If you yep. set a five-year goal to wipe out the 150000 it means that when you're done, you'll have moved up the income ladder as a physician assistant, and you'll have wiped out that debt, and you'll be in a position to really start putting money away for other goals like retirement, saving for down payment on a house, whatever your other goals are. But I love the idea of you, you've been used to as a student living on very little. You yes, sir. do that for five more years after you finish, it changes the entire rest of your life. Okay. So you wouldn't even recommend thinking of the other way. If, if that's an option, go do that. Yeah, I would say definitely. The only, the only noodle I would do to that is if you go to work somewhere as a PA and you're offered a retirement plan with a match and you've got to put mm-hmm. up a certain amount of money to get that match, that would be a higher priority. And then after okay. that amount you put aside to get the match, throw yourself completely into doing the student loan debt. And I find that if you come up with, you figure out what the numbers would be, and you come up with, let's say, a 60-month plan to pay down that debt, and you know what you mm-hmm. have to pay every month, the odds that you get there are so much higher than if you uh, just say, hey, I'm going to do everything I can to pay it, but without any real goal, just fuzzy about when you'd pay it off, having that specific timeline makes all the difference. And so this is is a lot of debt you're going to have to take on versus the income you're going to make. So having the discipline you're talking about will change the rest of your life. Today's Clark Regis moment is like a continuing parade in the world of hacks and how we need to react to them as consumers. And I want to tell you that there is a new report that is from Ars Technica, which is a obviously a technology blog, about a hack of a government payment portal that people use to pay to uh, city and state governments, various bills. And... People have been compromised, or people's cards have been compromised that they've used to pay bills to various levels of government in all 50 states. The hacks that have happened with governments have not been in all 50 states, but the people whose cards have been compromised are in all 50 states. If you use a portal that a local or state government gives you to pay a bill, and you put in your checking account number, oh, please don't. Because that's one of the greatest risks. It's also why you don't use a debit card. If you're going to pay on a government portal, you want to pay by credit card because you have a whole different layer of protections that don't exist when you link a checking account to pay a government agency or anybody else like that online, and you have... If you're shopping online or you're paying government or anything online with a debit card, the risks are intense to you with a debit card, the risk level that does not exist with a credit card. Just remember that that debit card is dangerous to use and is poison to your pocketbook. Now, the other breach is one that we've talked about a number of times over the last, I guess, five years 
and that is that Yahoo Mail had a massive data breach where every Yahoo Mail user in the in the world had their email accounts compromised, and that led to a lot of problems with identity theft in all different ways. Well, the Yahoo settlement is available to you for people who had a Yahoo account between 2013 and 2016, and as a result of the settlement of the class action, probably got a notice in the mail that you're eligible for compensation. Typically, 100 bucks could be higher up to even several hundred dollars. I have the information procedure for you, how to make a claim on that at Clark.com. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main website, ClarkDeals.com. We update day and night, every day of the year but Christmas, to tell you the latest, greatest deals for your wallet. So there was a big story about when is the cheapest time to buy a home? And according to Realtor.com, right now, this week, is the equivalent of Black Friday of real estate purchasing. Now, how'd they come up with that? So their data is based on the fact that the number of buyers is so much smaller around the country that once you cross Labor Day, that the number of buyers just gets scarce, but that the number of homes unsold is still pretty much what it was from the peak selling season that, depending on where you are in the country, starts between the 1st of March and the 1st of May. So there's a big frenzy of activity in the spring, into early summer, And then there are the homes that linger. And the idea of this is that you hit a point where the number of homes still listed is quite large. But remember why. In many parts of the country, a listing agreement, when you list with an agent, is for how long? Six months. So a lot of times people may have already given up on really trying to sell their home, but it has to stay on the market for those six months. So I want to talk about what to me is the more important bargain window, and that is November, December, and up till about the middle of January. There's a reason why that roughly 10-11 week period is potentially the ultimate bargain time for buyers. It's true. There are far fewer properties listed during that time period. But let's say there are any of a number of reasons why somebody has a house on the market. It can be for, um, it could be an estate sale. It could be a relocation. Somebody's gotten transferred or they lost their job and they had to go somewhere else in the country to get a job could be because of a divorce. In other words, what is referred to in real estate circles is a people problem sale. That whatever reason the property is for sale is a position that puts the seller in a weakened position. 
when somebody has to sell property for any of those kind of reasons, the normal cycle of when people list and when the greatest number of buyers in the market and all that, doesn't that doesn't apply. And so you take the fact that you get into November, you got Thanksgiving, then December rolls around, you got Christmas, New Year's, the number of people out looking at real estate drops to like nobody. I mean, they're just not out there as buyers. But there are still wounded duck properties that are on the market, ones that people have to sell. So if you want to know my belief that regardless of these stats from Realtor.com, I believe the greatest opportunity for you to get a deal is actually later in the fall through the early part of winter, that's when, if you're a buyer looking for a bargain, that's when you'll find it. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Chris. Hi, Clark. Chris, you have an unusual real estate venture to ask me about, don't you? I do. So um, we have a short-term, I'm sorry, we have a rental property that we're going to be putting on the market uh, here in the near future. And uh, we made contact with a company that essentially helps um, you rent to both a long-term renter and Airbnb. Um, and um, wanted to find out if you had insights about having this company work as an intermediary to take care of both of those and the legality of it. Okay, so let's talk about, let's get real specific here. What's the company that you're looking at? Yeah, the company is named Loftium. Okay, so Loftium has changed its business model some over the years. You know, I first had calls about them a couple of years ago where they tried a business model where a buyer would um, share, kind of like share the the long-term profitability of a property in return for getting their help and buying a place and part of the property you'd buy would be a rental property and the other part would be what you lived in. And they've moved on now to uh, a business model based on properties being principally Airbnb units. So where do you fit in this? Are they interested in buying your property or having you convert your property into a rental that you would do through them? Yeah, so I'm the the owner of the property, and they would split my property into both the long-term rental and then the Airbnb and take a portion of the Airbnb profit while giving the long-term rental a discounted um, rental price. But you would still own the property. They would just put this deal together? Yep, that's correct. Okay, so the risk for you being involved in this and is that in the event of a liability issue, you have to be prepared for that. You have both a long-term rental that with any of us as landlords, there's always the risk of liability. Somebody gets hurt at your property, anything like that. Mm-hmm. And with short-term rentals, you have more potential for liability concerns because you got more turnover in the property 
obviously, with people coming in constantly. Now, what is mm-hmm. your management role if you do this with Loftium? So it would be specifically the maintenance of the property. So if a, a sink or a toilet breaks, I would either hire out to a plumber or fix it myself. So they handle everything with the long-term renter and the short-term renter. That's on them. Yep, that's correct. All right, and in their business model, the the long-term renter is given some responsibility over the short-term rental property. Often it would be like uh, a garage apartment or a basement apartment or something like that. It's the short-term, and that long-term renter, typically in Loftium, has some oversight responsibility for that yeah so they'd be managing the airbnb in our case our upstairs would be the long-term renters area in the basement which is two bedrooms one bath um would be the airbnb section of it so this is uh this is an incredibly creative business plan that they have um in terms of for you does the math look good from what they presented to you as to what kind of income you'd be able to generate from this property? Yeah, it does. So they offered um, uh, about $100 above our expected rental price for the market, as well as a three-year commitment, so guaranteed on-time, direct-deposited uh, rent. So. And what are your rights if you end up not being happy with the arrangement and you want to kick them out? So they come back every year for that three-year period. That's just a check, and they give you an opt-out after the one year. And what do you have to pay? What do you have to pay at that opt-out time? Yeah, I haven't um, asked that question yet, but that's a good question. You want to know that, and you want also to see in writing the contract, and I would say that this is a moving target business model, I would have it reviewed by a real estate attorney, not just any lawyer. I want you to go to see someone who does real estate law and have them review the contract you'd have to sign. Okay, that's a great idea. And I really want you to think about the liability side and consider maybe increasing the amount of liability coverage you have, potentially even getting an umbrella insurance policy for the Mm -hmm. risk that could come because you will have lost control over who is living in your property. Okay. Yeah, we do have a a current umbrella policy, but um, would it be worth reaching out to my insurance provider to um, determine if this would be covered? Exactly. You took the words right out of my (laughs) mouth because they may see this as a non-accepted conversion of the property and that even though you're paying premiums for it they may not pay a claim because it may not be a covered purpose so that's why you do ask anytime you convert a personal residence into a rental property you've got to find out if the insurance you have is still going to cover you or if that is a disallowing factor that you're paying premiums and you got nothing if the chips are suddenly down. Christine's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Christine. Hey, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Christine. You are a pretty generous soul, aren't you? 
Well, I tell you, I've got I've got a, a good kid, and I want to reward him for some hard work. So um, I wanted to ask you, I, uh, I want to take my son on a trip for uh, graduation, and he would like to go to China as, you know, as his choice, but I know nothing about traveling to China. So I was really hoping you could provide maybe some, you know, suggestions or resources and some some thoughts about that, about whether that's a good trip to take as a family of four with older teenagers or kind of like what your guidance It's a be. fantastic trip. I've had the privilege to go to China four times, and it is a, a great experience every time I've been there. And, you know, we've got obviously significant differences with the communists right now, and we're in the trade war. And that has led to a slowdown of their economy and ours. And that means that the cost of going to China for both the flights and for hotels is much, much lower than it's been. In fact, it's very common now that from the West Coast, you can get to China these days for 300 to 450 round trip. which is pretty extraordinary. And China has probably the world in its biggest cities has probably the world's largest supply of incredibly nice hotels, many of which now can be purchased for nightly rates of from about $60 to $110 a night because of the economic slowdown. So it is, it is, yeah, it's an amazingly cheap time. And where in the country do you live? I'm in Austin, Texas. All right. So uh, you lucky person, you have In-N-Out Burger and Whataburger across the street from each other. Heck yeah. And Amy's ice cream. I mean, how can somebody not live in Austin with all those things? Anyway, so (laughs) for you, what would normally make sense is you would buy a ticket from Austin to L.A., San Francisco, or Seattle, and then a separate ticket across to wherever you'd go in China. Okay. Um, the airlines, yep. the airlines vary a lot in quality that are available to China, and you want to check the um, TripAdvisor on those and check the Skytrax rating, S-K-Y-T-R-A-X, because China has anywhere from some of the world's very best airlines serving it to some really mediocre ones. Okay. Would you recommend trying to figure out our way around the country by ourselves? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's no big deal. That's really easy. Really easy to do. And um, no hassle, even without speaking or understanding any Mandarin, you'll be just fine. And... You know, you can go to any of the big three. You can fly to Beijing, Shanghai, or Guangzhou, which are the three principal cities of China. And when you're in any of those three, you can get around on these phenomenal, futuristic, high-speed trains to go other places in China, or you can fly internally very inexpensively in China. So okay. it's, and- it's a very um, traveler-friendly destination. Okay, great. And so um, traveler-friendly and you feel good safety-wise, just with, like some of the other things that have been going on? Yeah, safety like safety's fine. 
just don't say anything about how much you hate the communists or anything, because then yes. you might not be seen for a long time, because it's an <laughs> extreme totalitarian society. Okay. I mean, it is a Great. strict, uh, ugly dictatorship, which most communist societies are, but communist, uh, you know, the Communist Party in China and the dictator Xi has made it uh, a brutal place for any dissent at all, and there are no rights that we have as foreigners if they decide that you've become a problem. But as a destination, it's extraordinary and absolutely worth seeing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Clark.com slash ask. That's where you post a question for me and producer Joel asks your question for you. What you got, Joel? All right, Clark got a question from Jody. She says, I'm curious what the rules are for first-time homebuyers. Is it possible that we could get a loan with no down payment or add closing costs into the loan? Like, how does that work? So that was very common last decade. And for the most part, those kind of offers went away after the real estate bust because it's very common in 05, 06, 07, 06 and 07, that you could buy even multiple properties without income qualifying, credit qualifying, uh, no money down, and that didn't work out so well. So now it's much more typical that you have to have 3.5% down in order to buy a property. The however is there are some local housing programs that you can find if you search around on HUD.gov where local housing agencies make loans available to first-time homebuyers free of a down payment in return for you going to classes on how to handle money, that they know that once people understand more about how to budget and how to handle money, the odds of foreclosure go down heavily. All right, Clark, and Michelle says, what are your thoughts on using the website CarGurus when searching for a vehicle? Uh, Car Gurus is a great listing service. Uh, it's a very competitive space now with listing services for cars. Car Gurus is very heavily advertised these days, and it is a good alternative to look for inventory new and used. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.